1: Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery, and it's brought to you by our friends at knowyourscript.org. Dr. Matt, what's your favorite thing about Know Your Script? I, the ease, convenience of it, because
2: I'm always in a hurry to do stuff. And so if, if I have to search for things, it's a real hassle. And you can go right to their website, and it's so easy to navigate. And uh, I think it helps people feel prepared for their doctor's visits because, you know, I work with people with anxiety. Right. And going to the doctor for anything is a big source of anxiety for people, especially if they're in recovery or thinking about recovery. They're worried about opiates and painkillers. It's a great place to just quickly go get a little you know,
1: navigation about what to say, and then you're prepared. Helps you become an advocate for your own health. Absolutely. Uh, We love them. They're a wealth of knowledge. Go check them out, knowyourscript.org. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. Now, you know, the first part of the show, we kind of uh, bring something to the table where we talk about. Right. You sat down. I said, Dr. Matt, what do you have? And you said... Nothing. And well, you, I have a headache. You have a headache, yeah. And so I but said, I'm not got, sure anybody wants to hear I think about I've that. got something. Uh, yeah. I was thinking about it this morning uh, and I was getting my news, surfing the Facebook. Yeah, uh, where the hard news is, yeah. right? And so, direct source. But I, I try to read every message that's sent into us, every comment. I, I try to read it, acknowledge yep, it, I know. Can send you a heart, something to go, hey, look, because I appreciate you doing so. Right. But one thing I notice is a trend, and uh, people will send messages and go, Hey, will you talk to my son? He has a problem with alcohol. Hey, I'd love it if you would talk to my husband. He has a problem with meth. Or, you know, whatever it is, whatever their drug of choice is. They always say they have a problem with that. Well, surprise, I have a problem with that. Because the problems are their problems, and their drugs are their answers to their problems. Does that make sense? Yeah, they're
2: maladaptive answers, but yeah, I know what you're saying.
1: So what it is is that when we've had people sit down like our our guest today, Jordan, Jordan Burningham, and we're going to talk to him in just a second, they'll sit there and they'll talk about their drug problem. But when we dissect the story and we hear it in its entirety, a lot of things come to light and you go, oh, no, there was problems before. And if you want to be on the road to recovery, you sometimes have to go back and address those problems that you were trying to numb, run from, or
2: hide. No, I wouldn't say sometimes. I would say always. In fact, I would say this is what's behind most relapses is mm-hmm. a person can get sober for a period of time technically, but they're not taking it the next step which is to find out what was what's um, amiss in my life. What do I need to address and change? What are the problems? Because you're absolutely right. Life is hard. We all have problems, and unfortunately, some people end up using uh, a substance to mm-hmm. numb out from that drug, and and that you know that started the whole ball rolling. But if you don't go back and fix the things, and your sobriety is pretty tough to maintain.
1: I remember two years ago when I sat down in this chair and I said, you know, uh, I. I surprise, every addict says they're different. But I was like, you know, I didn't really get into my addiction because of a trauma. I didn't do that. I mean, it was just one of those things that became a coping mechanism and became a problem. I didn't get out of it. But after three years in recovery, I can look back and say, no, there were certain things that I felt inadequate. Uh, I was overcompensating. I, there was a lot of things that in my life that I was using alcohol to help me or numb me or give me the courage, whatever it is. But I mean, yeah, I have problems.
2: I think that's the more common way people get into a substance abuse or alcohol problem is because, uh, it's, I mean, sometimes there's you know a specific life event that creates trauma or a series of life events that are very traumatic and that kind of kicks off a substance abuse problem. But more often than not, it's, it's a compensation for things like anxiety, inferiority, stress management, uh, insecurities. And that becomes a life pattern. And I think that was your situation.
1: It, it, it was hundred percent, but I was thinking about it this morning on the drive down. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's what I was doing. And then the alcohol becomes a problem because that's the only way you cope. Right. Uh, as you know, if something hard comes, you know, what we're going to fix that two beers. What's going to fix that? Two tall boys. Or anytime
2: you go to try to do anything, you have to have a drink before you go. I talk to people all the time that when we're working on anxiety stuff, they're like, well, I, I need to have a few drinks before I go do that exposure therapy, Dr. Matt. And I usually say, no, to dial it back. We need to learn to do this without the alcohol because you're just masking the anxiety, which eventually gets out of
1: control. One of the biggest lies I ever told myself, uh, alcohol made me funnier. Alcohol made me a better golfer. Alcohol made me a better boyfriend. Alcohol made me a better husband. And if you go over my history, alcohol did the exact opposite to all those things. It made me a worse golfer. It made me a worse boyfriend. It made me a, made me a worse father. But I thought that I needed it because it gave me...
2: I don't think Midnight Oil would have kicked you out of their uh, dressing room. room for drinking they, all their Heineken's? Yeah, if you'd over. Uh, who knows? you so could you'd have hung out with them. I could have been
1: on tour with Midnight Oil you right now. You know. Yeah. You know, the beds are burning and I'm out there just hanging out with them. But you no booted to the hallway. And if I go back and look over my history of everything that I thought alcohol helped me on, it did the exact opposite. Isn't that funny? But back then, we could have had this conversation. I'll go, you are wrong, Dr. Matt. You don't know. And I had people that would go, hey, look, this This is not good. You're not funny. You're not better. So I, I agree with you, but I'm going to challenge it a little bit. Okay. Okay. But
2: I believe every behavior has a purpose. Mm-hmm. They're not all good. No. But what were you getting? So one thing to ask yourself, if you're listening and you have a bad behavior that you don't you don't like, you know it's problematic, uh, you ought to ask yourself, but what am I getting out of it? Don't judge it. Don't be judgmental. Just ask yourself, what am I getting out of this? So answer that question. I agree with everything you said this morning, but what did you get, good or bad? We see
1: it differently now, but at the time, what were you getting out of it? I was getting response. I was getting reaction. I was getting accolades. I mean, there there, there was a lot of. I hate to say because it, of the
2: alcohol. You think? No. What did the alcohol do? What did you get out of it at drinking? And don't say nothing because that's my point. There's no. something.
1: Sometimes it made me not care. Um, I have to do crazier,
2: sillier stuff. Yeah. Especially early in your career on the morning radio show. Don't you, like I think there was an anxiety piece that oh, you yeah. Were, yeah yeah
1: so I called it liquid courage yeah there you go it gave me liquid courage yeah. Give me two beers and I'll do anything. Yeah. You ask me right now, bull, I'd be like, oh, I, I, I probably would, but you'd have to do a lot more talking me into it. Back then, <laughs> I'd be like, sure. Yeah. You want to window wash the Wells Fargo building on a rope? Yeah, why not? You want to jump out of an airplane, a perfectly good airplane? Yeah, let's do it.
2: These are all things he's done, by the Yeah. <laughs> and
1: do you, do you want to get shot with a taser gun? Yeah, okay. I mean, you want to get pepper sprayed? Okie dokie. Let's do it. Yeah. And so it got me the desired result I was looking for and what my profession for. Yeah. Yeah. But to what extreme?
2: Well, what was the so that that's what it did for you? And again, you notice I'm not saying what good did it do for you, I'm yeah. just saying what it did for you. Uh, what was the cost though?
1: My job, my marriage. You've lost some good jobs, yeah. I've lost some really good jobs, yeah. and I've got a great job again, and, and I and I love it, and I'm not willing to risk it for alcohol, but yeah, I mean, and it you was, have a great lady again, yes, but you don't want to, oh, yeah. So I mean, it's it just it, it's crazy. So when I hear people say my son's got a problem with meth, I do agree your son's got a problem with meth. But your son's got some problems that we've got to address. There's still a way. Sometimes of- even discover. Yeah. At some point, people don't even really know what there
2: might there might be many deep seated issues.
1: But I still think there's a, a, a population out there that thinks that. If somebody just stops meth, the world better yeah. or that that that's the answer that yeah. that they just got to stop drinking or they got to stop meth. Well, yeah, I think that's a big
2: part of it. And I agree with that because it's a second as a psychologist and working with patients, they come in and and a lot of my anxious patients do uh, smoke a lot or drink a lot of alcohol. And we can't really get to the good stuff, the CBT, the changing neural pathways and reducing real anxiety in your life. If we can if we're still smoking every day. So yes, I agree with that that it's kind of step one. We have to get that mind clear and get it past that. But more, if we don't, you know, uncover what those problems are and start addressing them for real, we're
1: gonna end up right back in the same place. I saw this thing on says if we don't change our way of thinking, we're doomed to relive the same experiences.
2: Yeah, I love the fact I'm getting you uh Josh, can we get him like a, a fe- license book uh honorary PhD? Like a degree f- in Facebook-ology? But that one's good. I'm, it is. I'm, I'm, I'm you, you pull out the best stuff. I only see garbage. You You end up finding the gems on uh, so Facebook. So I just search
1: for it and I go, that one's good. Yeah. That's, I'm going to remember a, that one. I'm serious. i bust that out on that. I know. And so I think it's very apropos, and I think that, you know, that's what it's all about. And so we're here to, to open up a conversation and talk to people and share our experiences today. His name is Jordan Burningham. He's uh, the owner, CEO of Diamond Tree, and uh You've also got a story,
3: true? Story to tell. I'm ready. Stick around. We'll be right back with more Project Recovery.
0: A gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us.
1: Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That is Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist and one of my best friends. Our guest today is Jordan Burningham. I don't know why I'm having a hard time saying your name, but Jordan Burningham. How are you want to say failed? Burning Man.
3: Burning Man. Yes. Have you ever been to Burning Man? I haven't, but I know a lot about it because I know a lot of people that do. So
1: (laughs) So, uh, before we find out more about Diamond Tree and the groundbreaking stuff that you guys are doing there, because I really do love your approach to recovery, which is different than a lot of people in this state, let's find out about your story. How does
3: one end up owning a rehab center? Good question. I'm still asking that uh, to myself every day a little bit, but um, you know, as you guys have asked, I'll take myself back a little bit, um, you know, grew up in Davis County and, and, uh, had a lovely family, lovely parents, right? One of those situations where how did I end up on the streets doing slamming heroin and cocaine, uh, right. How, um, also, you know, being one of the younger children of the family, you know, emotional regulation, being able to express my feelings at the dinner table, things like that. There's, I, over the years, you start to see little things that contributed to, to why maybe i had some issues um and you know the youngest child typically goes to grandma's house when all the older kids have choir concerts and basketball game and things like that she was she was way ahead of the times with plant-based medicines you know she didn't ever have a refined sugar in the home like dairy like she was just a way health conscious very health conscious Did she have wheat books. germ because i grew up with wheat germ uh yeah a lot of a lot of different things sprouts She did a lot of sprout stuff um and she'd walk she'd she'd date these guys i remember she was single from like age 28 to 70 or whatever and uh she would date these like millionaires and I i thought it was where i thought she was kind of playing the field thought, good for you grandma but looking <laughs> back i realized she would date them for months and they would go and like cure their cancer their heart like whatever and then she'd go to the next guy right she'd just feed him healthy meals take him for walks around the park across the street up by mueller park and uh I just thought that was wild, but she's she's way ahead of the time. So that's how our plant based medicine my passion for that started to develop was her health knowledge and writing cookbooks and traveling and doing that and then But we don't want to hear uh, about that
1: now. We want to hear about your slamming cocaine and heroin on the streets. Yeah. How did let's, you get to that? Let's point? get there.
3: Um, so as I was growing up, uh passion for basketball. I traveled to the United States playing basketball, that was my passion, right? I now understand I had a genetic component, right? I had some alcoholism and some things in, in life that created some reward deficiencies. Um, and my neurotransmitters and a, and a need for more uh, dopamine and, and more of those neurotransmitters. And so I was getting that met through the passion of basketball and some of my adrenaline-seeking activities. And um, come, come junior, senior year of high school, blew out my knee. And you know. so you've got the genetic components. I have some emotional dysregulation and, and ability to manage my, my emotions there. And then you take away a passion that's fulfilling an unmet need And then I get introduced to the Percocet, right? So prior to that, uh, in your early high school career and junior high, uh, never drank, never did any of that other stuff? I smoked weed, drank alcohol, um, you know, from time to time in a social setting, right, with with friends, and it was more social, Um, but never really felt like that was a- Did you have a
2: history of, like, adrenaline-seeking behavior? Were you the kid that jumped off the roof with a Superman cape and all that stuff?
3: yep. Going crawling down crazy tunnels and just whatever, right? As a kid, just adventurous, just extreme. You know, I, I was definitely. And I don't like, think whatever. a lot of people.
2: I, I want. I want you to slow down and explain what you mean by uh, reward deficit, sure. um, because I think a lot of people don't understand. You know, that, oh, that kid just has a lot of energy. But mm-hmm. explain to the listeners what you mean by that, because it's very interesting and it's a precursor to you know, put you at higher risk for substance abuse.
3: Absolutely. And I'm like, so I get the chills, like literally when I talk about it, because it's so important to me that people understand that and start to get prevention stuff like the DNA test that can tell you what reward deficiencies you have and a nutritional recommendation. So with reward deficiency, for example, we know now that trauma is passed down. We have you seen the, the lab rats mm-hmm. at you and all that, right? The father-parent rats got exposed to the orange blossom and shocked. And then they had offspring that never got shocked, but they smell orange blossom and they have a fear response. So we know genetically trauma and things are passed down. So you have that component. So people that have like grandparents that have been in wars and through hard stuff, we adapt, right? The human anatomy is amazing. We adapt to stress. And so some of them had to put together in their brain some more neuroreceptors to probably handle and, and cope with some of those things, right? And then we get passed down that. That genome and that genetic code. So now some of us, like we're actually capable of doing really amazing things. Warrior, adventurous, right? That, but you put you in your cubicle, a desk, and expect them not to like kind of act out. Like that's going to be a problem, right? (laughs) And so that's you're reward deficient. You're you're needing more stimulation than the average person. Some people can read a book and be content. Me, not the case. Right. Like I I do want to run and explore and adventure and jump out of airplanes and do things like that to suffice that dopamine deficiency. See, I tell my kids to do something every
1: day that scares them and they go, why, dad? And I go, so, you know, you're alive, you know, but that's but which I when I say it now, you know, I used to think I was being a good parent. But that's how I live. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? That's what keeps me going is I I,
2: you could say because you're
1: uh, reward deficient. Yeah, yeah I mean
2: I, I, no, I'm
1: just kidding but don't no but that's but, probably um, but there's something to that I mean mm-hmm. I like to do scary things because it lets me know I'm alive mm-hmm. and so I don't know if my kids are like that, but I always tell them that
2: well, what we're talking about is they're at you know higher risk so to speak genetically because they're your kid and we see this how many of our guests on the show over the last two plus years have had a sim they may not have used this language to describe you know technically what's happening but how many of them were like this i mean a, a high percentage of our of our
1: guests are like this so you were always looking for the extreme things to just to, to keep you going
3: yep. yep sports whatever it was to to stimulate and suffice that unmet need in chemically and right. you
1: said that basketball kind of met that need for you it was giving you what you want yep. and yep. then all of a sudden uh, an injury takes that away and from you and you were me. playing at a high level you said you're traveling the
2: was yep, that like just super received, league ball and uh, that kind of stuff
3: some scholarship offers junior to senior year like getting excited playing well mm-hmm. um you know i loved that you know that was my that was almost my identity which is another issue but um but yeah that passion was was feeling that i was traveling i mean it was connecting i was you know all those things and so the injury comes and no longer able to suffice that with the passion of basketball and you introduce a chemical the drug the percocet the. Also produces dopamine and does that. So my brain's like, oh, this is the answer. Like you don't need to do anything else. Like this is this is sufficing that unmet need in your brain chemically. What what year ish are we talking here? That was two thousand five. Okay, two thousand
2: four. So we're still. I'm just thinking about the opioid epidemic and when it really came to a head in the '90s and early two thousands. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean that. Yep. So, Percocet and other opioid prescriptions were. Just easy not regulated to get, very much not regulated just, well, yeah. yeah.
1: But here's another example of an addict getting introduced into a substance by a prescription. Physician, yeah,
3: and, and very little conversation about right the addictive potential, but obviously we know that the pharmaceutical companies didn't really explain that super well to the physicians prescribing either, but not enough emphasis on that for sure.
1: But after taking it, you realized that this was going
3: to meet the needs that you were searching for. Yep, neurochemically, yes. For sure. And so you, you feel good on it. It suffices that need. And, and then you become chemical dependent first, right? The chemical dependency comes first where you, now, if you don't take it, you don't feel as good. That's chemical dependency, not addiction yet. Addiction, you know, there's other factors, right? Loss of control, used to despite negative consequences, right? That comes later on. That took two more years of now I'm taking more to work to not feel the pain, to numb and emotional numb and to work harder and to do different things. And then the doctor takes the prescription away. Then what do you do? Because you are chemically dependent hmm. and you got to still function at work. So what do you do? So just so we can get everybody on the same page,
1: you said for about two years, you, were, you don't feel like you were addicted. It was just your body needed it. Mm-hmm.
2: Chemically dependent. It's, yeah, it's a step before mm-hmm. becoming.
1: But that's the first time it's that's a- ever been uttered on this podcast. I mean, I mean, it's it's crazy. I've never heard it like that.
2: Well, we've talked about it different in different ways, but yeah, I mean, uh, this is a a very
3: specific. I mean, it's a good way to think about how that progresses. Chemical dependency first can happen in five to seven days. You know, most people have it. Don't realize that when they get off their prescription after a month, they feel a little sick or not. You know, most people don't even notice it's attributed to the medication, but, but their then body's you, going through a withdrawal, right. even though they don't. There's neuro-adapt- adapt- adaptation that happens. There's a tolerance. Right. And then you need more and more. And then now you don't want to go without it. So now you're willing to do something like buy it off the streets or do something despite negative consequences and then loss of control. Right. Now we're addicted. Now, like, we're in trouble. So, what happened when the doctors took your prescription away? So, I still needed to function and work. And, you know, I employed like 16 of my friends at the landscaping business at the time. And, a lot of them you know we were partying and all that and so they'd be hungover. So graduated the from high school but without a basketball scholarship uh-huh. or future lost all that that i worked for
2: and you went to you you were entrepreneurial enough at that age instead of just playing mario kart all the time you you I did that too you yeah. did that too okay good uh you you employed a bunch of your friends to do landscaping
3: yeah so i had a little business since i was about 15 and then once i got to 19 partnered and, and we it's actually lawn butler I don't know if you've seen that around yeah uh rudy rudy brought me on and we, we partnered up and we we got our first hunter unit complex we needed a bunch of guys i had a bunch of friends but they're hungover in the mornings oh i don't want to go to work right so i got to handle all their work and you know so i needed more of the oxy or whatever to to get through so i just started buying it on the street and that's how that started then winter time comes work slows down mm. can't afford four you know, off day. Gotta say, those are expensive. Very, right? yeah. well, about eighty to hundred dollars worth more than oil. weight than gold. I think, like at the they, time, uh, like, yeah, 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 at the time, yeah, yeah. So, okay. so then it's like, hey, okay, I have a friend that's like, hey, okay, well, here's here's opium. That's how it's presented to me. Here's opium for ten dollars that has the same effect as a sixty to eighty dollar pill. Mm-hmm. Ten dollars, seventy dollars. Hmm, same effect. This is just a plant, right? It's all Heroine. natural. It's heroin. <laughs> right. They didn't, they saying didn't saying tell me that pill. until I'd done it a couple times. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah. like, great. I've done heroin now. 1800s so, here. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's, that's how that progressed to that point. You know, financially it just made sense. You know, you're, you're you you can not afford the other, you can't function without that it. Ha- so that happens in every
2: single case because nobody can afford to keep, to keep those pills flowing.
1: Mm-hmm. So while you're doing this, at any time, did your large family or were you married? Did anybody go, hey, uh, you know, you might have a problem?
3: Yeah. Yeah. That's funny because when the heroin started, that's when I was like, oh, you know, you have to be real stupid not to think twice about like heroin, right? You hear that enough. People are like, that's a bad thing. I wasn't that stupid. I knew like that's not a good thing, but I was in a bad situation. I had to just, you know, cope and that's how I could cope with it. And, and so once that started, I, I reached out, I said, I need to start getting some help, right? I started seeing a doc in Bountiful and getting Suboxone and that's when I did the Suboxone and some counseling and trying to get off. Suboxone is good for a lot of situations I'm not bashing it, but it's really, really difficult to get off. And, and so once I was on that, I was pretty much stuck, but my family didn't intervention because they wanted me to get treatment because I stepped for me, anyone I've known with Suboxone, they, it lasts three to nine months maybe, before they start going back to another drug because it doesn't have the same effect, doesn't feel as good, kind of makes them nauseous, you know, and so they start going back to their drugs. So a lot of them just substitute when they can't get the drug. They'll use Suboxone, and they go back to using, you know, and that's what I was doing. So I was still using heroin when I could find it. And I used Suboxone to keep off withdrawals, and I just kept, you know, was a functioning addict, basically. Um, and, and then at some point, uh, my family knew enough was going on. I told my brother, uh, who was close to me, about how bad it was got, had gotten. I started slamming. and Slamming, for those who don't know, is syringe. IV, yeah, IV usage. And and I was doing cocaine, heroin, the speedball back and forth, which is obviously very dangerous. This is the one that killed uh, Chris Farley, John Belushi. One of them. Yep. Yep. And so the counselor had done the whole thing with parents about not letting me have a comfortable place to use, which is smart. So I got kicked out and started, you know, lost my job, lost my house, you know. I'm, how how old was, of a guy were you at this time? I was 19. I was between 19 <laughs> and 20. So in two years, this just went. Yep, from about 17 to 19 or 18 to 20 is when all that just started going downhill big time. So I'm homeless, slamming, not a good situation. So uh, I showed up to my counseling session um, because I was still trying to get work on what I I wanted to get better. And uh, saw all my family's cars there in the parking lot. I'm like, oh, I know what this is, right? And we're going to find out what that is in
1: just a second. You're listening to Project Recovery right here on KSL. So if you're like me, you probably have watched the TV show Intervention. Yeah. So you knew what was about to happen. Yeah, was,
3: people with letters in hand,
1: uh-huh. a lot of crying uh-huh. and uh, you were going to have
3: yeah, people I don't want to face with all of this. You know, I only knew that one brother knew about it, right? Now everybody knows. Now we got to talk about it. You know, I know it's going to hurt people and so what do you think I did before going into that session? Shut up. Slam so pretty hard, right? Let's numb out. Let's numb out before I have to actually feel my feelings because I I don't do that well. I never had anyone show me how to feel feelings well.
1: But in an addict brain, that makes sense. Yeah,
3: that's so why I knew you'd answer it right Oh yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um. So I did, and I go in there, and it's just so sad to think back. Like I'm just numb, right? They're crying, they're sharing things, they're worried, they're all this stuff, and I'm just nothing.
1: Right. So I've never done heroin, and, and so I don't know. But, like, did you hear any of the words they said? I mean, did did they cut through? I'm curious of that because I've seen the show enough to go, uh, do, do the words get through?
3: Or are you still just going, I'm just waiting to get out of this, and I'm gone? Kind of a combination. Like, thinking back, I, I literally don't remember the conversation. I kind of know what the result was of some of the letters and things, but most words, I don't remember any of it. Um, I, I do I, I felt enough and I cared enough about my family to hear them and like consider treatment. And of course it was gonna be on my terms, like instead of today, like maybe Monday. You know, let me go use hard, whatever. Do this, whatever excuse. And they're they like, have. no, you need to go now. And of course, I'm like, I'll go Monday, you know, and then I end up doing like 60 balloons and 60 hours right before. Right. That's that's why the, the counselor said this is when people overdose is the, the time between now and treatment. So we because get, they're
1: going to get in it as much as they can yep. because they know it's coming to an end. Yep. And so, that's very dangerous for addicts. That's why yep. a lot of times we talked about it last week uh, on the podcast is that if somebody's from detox, that 72 hours, you, you've got to get them within those 72
3: hours or it's not pretty yep yep so that was my situation there but i did commit to go um what my forcing factor for me motivating factor was for me was my family said that i couldn't be around the nieces and nephews anymore right and so for me that's what it took for me to be like "Ah, that's a that's a big deal to me like I, i love them i want to be in their life and so you know life wasn't great anyways so i just need that little extra nudge you know and so families just need to know that like Put your boundaries in place. Like if they're not willing to keep to and be healthy and be in treatment and, and do the right things, put your boundaries and keep to them. Make those consequences make it happen. And, and it, the less comfortable the individual is in their using life, the more likely they are to change. But if you give them food, give them money, give them a place to stay, anything that keeps them more comfortable while they're using, less likely they're going to stop.
2: How hard was that for your parents?
3: So hard. Can you imagine? Like, I get emotional just even thinking about that. I had to do an intervention with the family last night and they 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 can't do it yet as far as like cutting them off. But like my family had to kick me out knowing like I might die and they have to accept that I might die and cut me off. How hard is a parent?
2: I, I personally have, you know, because I've heard that a lot on the show and I know that's the reality, but I think about myself as a dad, not as a doctor mm-hmm. and as a dad. I don't know. That's mm-hmm. a that's tough but it is what it takes, isn't yeah. it?
3: So I just spoke to a family obviously anonymous for sure but the the parent was actually helping give a little bit to the the child because of the benzos and different things because he says Dan, if I do, Dan, if I don't, at least I know what they're getting. At least I know that, like, I can control it. If she, if she gains it from me, she's going to get somewhere on the streets mm-hmm. from someone. False that, sense right. of control, but but right, I right, understand. Right. As, a parent, you're as desperate. a parent, you think that, right? Yeah. You think I'm helping when you're really enabling, yeah. right? But for you can see why they think like it could be laced with something, and they could overdose on meth You know, it could be on the streets; they get yeah. robbed or whatever. Like that's not safe for my daughter or whatever, right? So I'm going to at least try to control it. Yeah. you know, but it's not helpful. It's it's not. So it's tough. So, so
1: after 60 hours, 60 balloons, you show up for treatment. Yep. With our buddy
3: Andy, right? Andy. Yeah. Oh, Andy, Andy Gold. Gold. Yeah. yeah. The comedian. Yeah. We we got to share some good war stories on his podcast, but so yeah, I go to good old Ogden regional. Bless their hearts. Um, <laughs> I don't even know how to go down that path, but just higher than a kite, you know? And so you go into treatment. I ended up it's like on 16 milligrams of Suboxone, just this cocktail. I'm like higher than I've been in on all the heroin and everything. But there's a reason to stabilize them with stuff they can control. I get it. Right. There's a medical reason for, for that. And then their thought process is they'll taper you off in a safe yeah. manner. And it's medical procedures, standard practice. So no one's doing anything that they're you know not supposed to try to do at the time. Um, But uh, get in there and I I, I would cheek some of it because it was too much. I knew. I'm like, I don't need more than eight milligrams for sure. Like my receptors can only handle so much. That's other parts is too much. So I would cheek it. For those of you who don't know, cheeking is the
1: process of uh, taking a pill and put it in between your teeth and your cheek. uh, You know, uh, just save it for later it. or whatever, yeah, yeah. For, whatever reason. So yeah, for whatever yeah. reasons. I remember I was in rehab and some dude goes, you're not taking that. And I go, no, I don't think I need it. And he goes, well, why don't you get it, cheek she it and do. then give it to me. And I was like, you're going to take a pill out of my mouth. He goes, yeah. And I go, I'm not doing that. <laughs> I'm, exactly where I'm going. It's yeah. funny you say
3: that. So that's what happened to me is I, so I cheeked it and I had a guy in there, my, across the hallway. He was coming off his taper. And so he's hurting, right. From coming off the box in, he's like, dude, can you just cheek me some, man? Just a little, I just need one more little bump before I, that Right. So I did, of course, it's in my mouth too, right? You think about that; it. it's kind of gross, but they or don't. We're French care. kissing, they're, basically. They're hurting. I think, I think hygiene is out the window <laughs> yeah, at this point. Yeah. Probably, yeah.
1: if you've been living on the street <laughs> yeah. and slamming cocaine and heroin. Yeah.
3: So I, I shared with him, and he outed me in group that afternoon. You know, <laughs> secrets <laughs> keep you sick, type of thing. And I'm like, oh man, I thought we we're homies, like. But bless his heart, like it helped. You know, if it wasn't that hard, because I went from 12 milligrams to nothing, had a seizure there, I like didn't sleep and eat. I mean, it was it was miserable. Um, but if I didn't have something that hard, I'm stubborn enough, I probably would have gone back. But after that, I'm like, I don't want to go back. Yeah. We've had a lot of people on this podcast who said they
1: welcomed death but feared withdrawals yeah mm-hmm. like they were like i'm praying for mm-hmm. death because i do
3: not mm-hmm. want to withdraw isn't that crazy but it's true like it's so miserable not sleeping just mind racing going crazy like a lot of people would rather be dead than have to deal with all that pain and central nervous system ache it's just it's miserable
1: so after the ogden regional did you go into an inpatient treatment facility or yep. did you do it there
3: so no I did they didn't have the residential at the time so it was just the ACT and then I got transferred over to Cold Creek there which is the building that we now own and operate out of Diamond, Diamond Tree. Tree. Um went there and you know had a had a good experience. How got many days did you do?
1: 42 I believe. 42, 44 something like that. And back then what was Cold Creek's modalities or what what, what did they use? So
3: they did some good CBT stuff. I liked the psychologist that I worked with. Um They had some, they were like cutting edge at the time on some of the amino acid stuff. Like we had a chef that taught me about the tryptophan and the stuff, you know, some of the serotonin, um, things like that, which I really, I mean, I sat and I loved that. So I sat with the chef and just learned some of that stuff and, um, some experiential stuff. They were more, um, outside the box at the time, you know, so, but, uh, after 42s of 42 days of graduation. Did you
1: go back out or have you been clean ever since?
3: No, I went back out. It took, I mean, I was probably three or so months, you know, sober, um, not living a life in recovery. I had to teach a client last night, a friend, uh, you know, the difference between recovery and sobriety. They're different. You know, a life of recovery is like you're in a state of healing, passion, connection, you know, other things, not just sober. Sobriety is totally different, right? People can grin and bear it, white necklet, That's sobriety. But recovery is you're getting enough sleep, enough nutrition, your body can heal. Like You're, you're in recovery, right? The Whoop app, you've seen the Whoop app? Like no. that's a, a golf app that helps you know like how much, and it's an exercise app. How much do you, are you in recovery, how much sleep, how much exercise? Tell you when to work out, when not to, because your body's not in a state of recovery. I want to use it for health, recovery, and addiction, because um, I think it, it's the same idea. Um, if people aren't sleeping and eating and doing the right things for themselves, they're not in recovery to me, right? So despite what you use as far as addiction, uh, like sobriety, Recovery is different to me, if that makes sense. Um, So for me, I started drinking and smoking again because I wasn't engaged in meaningful purpose, passion yet, things like that. What did you go out to do? As far as? Well, I mean, so that's one of the
2: big problems with any kind of mental health hospitalization is, you know, if we don't have a plan for people, they often come back, you know, recidivism. So what did you leave the hospital to?
3: So mean, not a ser- lot of aftercare or anything like that. I went back in. What I, what I tried to do is get into work. Right? A lot of people are like, I'm going to go find a job and get into work, which I was lucky. Did you have a place to live? Uh, I lived in my parents' basement, which I was lucky to at least have a place to land, mm-hmm. right, um, with some accountability there a little bit, right? We know as parents, just, we can get away with pretty much whatever we want if we want. Um, but I uh, got a job at Integrated Wellness, Bountiful uh, with those docs there, and, and a lot of that saved my life. Um, honestly, those guys there, uh, mentored, they are great leaders, good friends till this to this day. And um, it was in line with with holistic healing and and things like that, and pain management. And so that's a lot of that model and nutritional components with the functional medicine doc. I, I learned and and helped bring into the addiction space um, for treatment. And that's, that's kind of where that came from.
1: Why did you go back out? What, 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 I mean, walk me through what, what happened.
3: Yeah, I mean, socially, right, the same things you were talking about, the lies you tell yourself, like social anxiety, like it helps me connect better, helps me make friends, the same thing. I, I love saying that to the clients of like, what are the reasons you thought it was helping you? And then what did it really do? And it, it's alcohol and those things are such a bugger because not only is it a false uh, sense of that at the beginning, Right. Because we all know, like, two to three drinks. Yeah, sometimes it does reduce the anxiety. Like, we're not stupid. I'm going to say I don't validate it at all, Yeah. Right? But then five, six drinks, you're, you're no longer a socially acceptable human. So the social <laughs> help you got barely just got your face down, say something stupid, you ruin that. And by the end of it, you ruin all your relationships completely. Um, and it takes away your passions and your health, your, your desire for healthy coping. Right, because once you really get down the road of drinking and stuff, now you don't have the energy. Your body aches more to go do healthy coping. Oh, so I paved
1: that road. I know. I know. It that takes road. Away the, <laughs> takes away the healthy
3: coping and deceives you on what it's actually doing. So it's a yeah,
1: it's, it's a, yeah. So so you go back out and you start drinking and stuff. How do you find your way back to recovery?
3: Yeah. So then um, had another blowout with a knee, and so again similar story. Right. I'm smart. I've been to treatment once. A little more cautious with the pain meds, but I start to feel it like two, three weeks in. I'm I'm taking an extra half, right? Taking an extra one. I'm like, uh oh, right. I got to watch myself, and started using Subutex to try to get off of that. And so I'm like, dang it! Like I'm right back into this, right? And then, um, it was it was a it was through integrated like. Managing my pain, like I had legitimate pain, that's why in my ideal future. So, did you? I hate to interrupt, yeah, you're but good. just
2: based, you know, because of who our sponsor is and what we talk sure. a lot about here, did you ever think to have a conversation with your physician? Like, I'm a recovering addict, did you mm-hmm. have that conversation?
3: We did, and I actually am close with you as directed up in the Davis County area. Mm-hmm. I actually I'm supposed to meet with them tomorrow. Um, so big into that, uh, I, I we did, and my mom made sure we did, right? When we go and, hey. And By the way, my son's an addict. But yeah, she did. My mom does that. So here's <laughs> That's a little embarrassing. You're like, oh, thanks, mom. Here's the hard part, right? Here's the hard part. I ruptured my patella tendon Ooh, in about when yeah. I mean, that was significant. Yeah. Right? Yeah, so, like, yeah. my mom's in there. He can't have pain. Man, I'm like dying in there, right? And the doctor's like, I understand, but like, this is significant. Right. Yeah. And, and this is
1: what this stuff is designed for. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And we do want to manage and have you control it when he gets out. Like there's things we can still do, but like he's going to need it. Like we're going to put him under, we're going to do surgery. This is a significant thing we're doing. We're drilling into the bones. We're doing right. Like it's a big deal. So yeah, I mean, I, I needed it. Right. And so, um, but well, we did have that conversation. Yes. Okay, good. Definitely. Well, that's great because to be honest,
2: a lot of people I don't know what. What do you think stops people from having that? I'll tell you right now, it's embarrassment. It's embarrassment. Sure, I uh, think that's there's a, big a lot one. of that,
1: and you know they just don't want to have that uncomfortable conversation with their doctor. They
2: should ask your mom to go with them. My mom will go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> go,
1: go. For and she'll tell you stuff you don't didn't even ask. I know your mom's yeah. very direct. Yeah. yeah,
3: yeah. And and it it is what it is. I'm hoping we take away the stigma as much as right. possible, right? But it's a thing for sure, and and we understand that. But it is important to to share that if you if you care about your recovery or sobriety at all, yeah. if You don't care and you don't want to have accountability, then of course you're not going to tell your doctor. Right. That's really the only reason. The same with the Vivitrol. Like, the only reason not to get Vivitrol is because you have plans to maybe use. That's the only reason I think yeah. people would say they don't want to get Vivitrol. Right? Yeah. So, Why would you not take that extra help? Yeah. Quiet the voices and block it. So how did you find yourself back to the road to recovery? Yeah. So then after getting to healing again, I was addressing the pain because I had legitimate pain. And so my ideal structure of uh, a practice I want to build in the future is blood work, x-rays. Let's, let's look at some root causes, look at the GARS and neurotransmitter deficiencies. Let's really get to some root causes. Like I had legitimate back pain. I have a short leg. I had things going on and spurs in the back. Like there's stuff going on. Like I'm not just wanting to have painkillers for no reason. Like there's some stuff going on. So addressing that, getting some physical therapy, strengthening, balancing a, a, a lift on one side, my back pain starts to go away. I don't need that stuff anymore, which was huge. So then I needed to suffice the reward deficiency with healthy passions Connection, the oxytocin you get—that's why connection is the opposite addiction a lot of times, right? Yeah, I, and and that's what got me back on the road to recovery. It was just healthy structure, time management, meaningful purpose—you know, starting to go to school for a, a career I was passionate about with counseling, helping people, serving people. Like all, it took a village, and it took me doing a lot of different things in my own life, structuring a balanced lifestyle schedule, nutrition, fitness. All those components came together. That got me on a path towards recovery. See
1: what he's saying, Doctor Matt, is what you've said in the beginning of this podcast. Is it's the pillars he was building a strong
3: foundation. Four yep. pillars, and you,
1: and you have to have all of those pillars. If not, your house will crumble. Yep. And you found the recipe for it.
3: Yep, That's, we do a recipe for success card with all of our clients because it's individualized. There's no silver bullet for sure. And then you have the men, we have mental, physical, social, and spiritual pillars that we look at at the program. So, so. today, how how long have you been sober? I have been come on six years now. So it was 11 years ago I went to treatment. So I dabbled dabbled for about four or five years. And it's, you know, and sobriety is different for everyone, right? Because to me, when I ask people that, I'm like, sugar, caffeine, right? Like, so if you ask me that, I'm like, I don't know, when did I, when did I have coffee and, and things like that. It's a little bit different. But yeah, heroin, mind-altering, illegal, illicit drugs. That's how long. That's pretty awesome. We're going to find out more about that and what the
1: diamond tree is doing in the world of recovery. You're listening to Project Recovery. Stick around. Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That is Dr. Matt Woolley. He's the clinical psychologist. Our t- our guest today is a wealth of knowledge. He is the CEO and owner of Diamond Tree. But Diamond Tree is just not an inpatient uh, rehabilitation center. It's also a detox center, an IOP. You guys have a lot there. Tell me a little bit about that.
3: Yeah, so we've got a full continuum. When I, when I came into it, I really wanted the residential rehabilitation because I think that's huge. People need to healthy habits, a controlled environment to get away from all the stuff that got them to where they were, so that was important. We got that going, um, lifestyle medicine, all that stuff. But the detox component was huge, right? And and there wasn't really anybody doing detox that really got people off the chemical dependencies. It was it was just switch it, switch it to a different addiction uh, that's legal, you know, that's prescribed and, and monitored. Yeah, and to me, like the whole brain science of addiction of the frontal lobe and the amygdala. Like you're still putting addictive substances that keep the amygdala very active and in control of decision making and skewed, you know, decision making and stuff like that. And so I wanted people to have the option to truly remove chemical dependency and what we do called frontal lobe rehabilitation. Remove sugar, caffeine like everything and down regulate the amygdala. It literally on a brain scan shrinks in size, which is Crazy!
2: That's amazing, huh? right? Yeah,
3: and then you see the activity light up in the frontal lobe again, and to me, that's how we should base medical necessity.
2: And what you're talking about is emotional processing versus rational, logical mm-hmm. processing in the frontal lobes. That that's where we are our best humans. That's where we make good rational Wise decisions. Mind. Our primitive brain and the amygdala that's emotional, uh, thinking, is that the fight or flight guy. Yep, yeah. <laughs> that's when when you have fight or flight. Your frontal lobes are going dark and your amygdala and hypothalamus are lighting up. And and we want to avoid that, obviously, mm-hmm. when a person is uh, trying
3: to recover.
1: So it sounds like you guys are doing things a little bit different up at the Diamond Tree.
3: We really are trying to change this industry to be more evidence-based on some new innovative things like the DNA testing, the frontal lobe work, uh, nutrition, the microbiome, mindfulness, you know, all of those things and components and And try to pave a new path. it's not about just group therapy and medication. I mean, Which, what's our success rate? yeah, right now with that
1: yes, I mean but see that's the problem i, I so I like the 12 step. I'm not a 12 step guy, but for the long time, that was the gold standard in recovery. And then it went from 12 step for AA to narcotics anonymous to cocaine anonymous to all those. And it's a, it's a good product and it helps out a lot of people and mm-hmm. a lot of people's lives have been saved by that. Mm-hmm. But I mean, you look at our cell phone and technology and our advancement in education and understanding the mind, body and soul. I mean, there had to be some new things coming out to help those in recovery. And it
0: looks
3: mm-hmm. like you guys are kind of, leaning towards that. For sure. The malnutrition in the country, all these other factors that are driving more of the physiological components to it, right? Again, 12 steps helps a ton of, I think everybody should do 12 steps. I think it's great, but it's not addressing all the factors for sure. Right. And all the new ones that you're talking about. And so we're trying to address it and have 12 steps and other, you know, modalities available. Cause like you mentioned earlier too, like there's no one way for everyone. Right. And so that's what works
1: for me might not work for you. Right. Some of the things might help you, but chances are my exact recipe for my recovery is not a blanket fits one size fits all. It's not how that works. You've got to find out what works for you and find your four pillars or your three pillars. It's going to make you whole. I tell people all the time, I got sober to live, not hide. I know a lot of people who've got sober and are just hiding from the Mm -hmm. world because they're afraid to go out and do things because they don't know if they can cope or handle the
3: things that are coming out of the coping skills. Right. In treatment center, if they don't give a coping even with cigarettes, right? If you don't give someone the ability to cope, right, and another thing to switch to to help them cope with the anxieties and things with that, like it's 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 rude. It's mean. It's cruel almost to like take away the drug or the addictions thing without giving them something to cope with, you know. Um and when we talk about those pillars and stuff, it reminds me, um, you know, heed Brian Heedon. Yeah. Um, good friend of mine. And uh I had him in one of my groups at at diamond tree and just, he stopped by as a friend to come visit. And, you know, he does some wellness recovery plans and stuff. And the same idea where through his experiences and a lot of ours, it's like we have to figure out through trial and error often what works and what doesn't. And so over time he started to figure out, okay, if I pray daily, if I connect with family daily, after when I do these things, I'm healthy and in recovery. If I let some of these slip, I slip back. Right And so that's where I developed the recipe for success. It's like, okay, for each individual, we know pretty well now, right? A few relapses later that okay, when these things are present in my life, when I'm going to the gym and I'm eating healthy this way, when I connect this many times, right, you create this mental, physical, social, spiritual, I am healthy when I do these things and add some life hill, life uh, hacks and some coping skills in there. Keep that with you, give it to people that you love. That care about your well being say keep me accountable. If you see I'm slipping, ask me if I'm doing these things right. I love that. That's one of the most beneficial things I think I've ever done for for the for the program is to help develop that. And it
2: it sounds like people leave there with an individualized recovery mm-hmm. program for themselves.
3: Yeah, and we talk about it every week in my balance group. It's like okay, here's some brainstorm. We do a balance brainstorm in all these areas: mental, physical, social. These are things you can do and schedule in your day to day weekly routines to address and and in, in, in gives yourself some better mental health skills and mental health and physical skills and social skills and connections and spiritual connection to a higher energy, a higher purpose to serve, right? All those components I found, like they're, they're needed for our whole self, right? There's a lot of parts to us. Um, and I, I love individualizing. They all try it. Like, don't put meditation on your recipe for success card if that doesn't work for you. Because if you're struggling and you're like, uh, meditation, and you, you know what I mean? It doesn't work. Make sure you it works for you, right? And we let them practice it in a safe, healing environment.
2: Well, I mean, this is different for everybody, but how long, you know, you're running this program? How, how many days or weeks do you feel like people need sure. um, in order to create their to, I mean, because you have to try meditation. You have to try these different yeah. things. Like, how long does a person need before they could confidently
3: create this
2: individual plan
3: as you know always individualized however right. there's some pretty common things that we we shoot for first of all probably like, couldn't do it in a week yeah so our we define success which is a big thing i hope one day someone tells me this industry's figured out how to standardize success rate tracking because it's all over the place like we have 90 percent success rate because they responded to our survey right that's not <laughs> success right Our is did, success. They, did they complete the goals they came to treatment with you know, and then we have another one. Did you stay in sobriety and in recovery for one year, which is tough, but that's the biggest one. So to answer your question, depends on what their goal is. Is it chemical dependency? Do they need to remove a chemical dependency? We can do that between four and 14 days. Right. But if they are addicted and they have chronic relapse history and they have behavioral issues and things like that, you're not changing habits and behaviors in less than 30 to 40 days, period. Like, yeah. Scientifically, you know, it takes time. But for me, it's it's. Getting the chemical dependence to be removed in about four to eight days is what we do, our detox. And then get the rehabilitation part, which is then developing new habits, lifestyle medicine, nutrition, microbiome, frontal lobe, all that, about 30 to 45 days. And then day treatment. Now apply your skills that you've learned. Right. Come back half day. Get back in your life a little bit, but still not quite ready for work and full-time stuff yet. And then IOP, intensive outpatient for 30 to 90 days typically right? Stay, keep learning life skills, stay connected, stay accountable with, you know, a therapist and drug testing and then general outpatient, you know, one to four times a month, coming still, checking in with the group, staying connected, sharing about your new job, sharing about your new passions, meaningful purpose you've created in life, a new family, a new charity, whatever you're doing to, to have some meaning in life that keeps you from going back to using. Um, and so one year, you know, I think statistically is, is massive. It's like 10 times the success rate if you can make that one-year mark because you've coped through all four seasons, right? Because what do you do in the summer versus what do you do in the winter? You cope differently. Oh, yeah. You have healthy hobbies different. Different so you gotta,
1: holidays, different milestones, different exactly, things. Exactly, birthdays. yeah. I'm excited and, and I'm really interested in the things you guys are doing at Diamond Tree. If people want more information about you guys and what you have to offer with the IOP, the outpatient,
3: uh, the residential, the detox, where do they go? So, diamondtreerecovery.com is a great place to get uh, a lot of good information. Um, our admissions team is awesome 385 888 9624. You know, Danette and, and Darcy. Cool. Uh, they're, they're, they're phenomenal. They just love helping people. And, and our tagline is people helping people. And truly you, you should feel this. If you don't tell me, write a review. I don't care. Cause I want my team to make sure we just help people. And Danette learned pretty early on that if someone calls and they need help and we're not the right fit, like we'll still, we'll be, we'll be there Uber. She's like, Jordan, we're like their Uber. I'm like, I don't care. Drive them to that treatment center. Drive them to this one. Like, Get them help. I don't care if they come to us. We'd love to help them. But if we're not the best fit for their needs, let's just get them somewhere. We're people helping people, and that's that's what we do. I think that's what we all need to be, is people helping people. Thank
1: you for stopping by and listening to the podcast today. Uh, don't forget that it's brought to you by our good friends over at knowyourscript.org. Uh, I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley, and that was Jordan Burningham. I said it right. Well it's done. Nice work. I love you guys. Don't forget that uh, Project Recovery is what, Dr. Matt? It's a KSL podcast. Buddy.
0: KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program
3: is solely at your own risk.
0: I'm Dave Colley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home.